I'm Ellen Liebeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Have you ever walked through a city and thought, it's really stuffy around here? This feeling you're having is something called urban heat islands, which essentially means it's hotter in areas with lots of big buildings and humans, and cooler in more rural areas with more trees and less people. Coming up on the show, we're going to explore this further, and you'll also hear about some cool roofing technology that not only makes our buildings cooler on the inside, but they stop it from getting hotter on the outside. Also, we're going back to uni. Well, back to the student life, which you're still well acquainted with, Ellen. Thanks for reminding me, Jake. We're going to visit a weekly pop-up brekkie bar at the University of Technology, Sydney, which is helping students end their pockets. Because if you know anything about students, it's that our pockets are empty pretty much all the time. I remember that. (laughs) But up first, it's time for a holiday. You've earned it. Where do you want to go? Italy, Bali, Bora Bora. Let us take you there. No we insist. Just sit back, relax and enjoy the flight. I would absolutely love to go to Cuba before the McDonaldization of Cuba happens. actually become a centre for sustainability and it's, I haven't been there but from what I hear it's uh, an incredible place because they've had to actually reuse what they have rather than throw things away because they, they haven't been able to buy new things. This is Catherine. She considers herself a sustainable traveller, well has sustainability in mind when she's planning her next adventure. She says if she had the chance, she wouldn't stop travelling. Ever. But knows that might not be the most sustainable thing to do. It worries me a lot because I am really conscious that the single biggest thing an individual can do to contribute to climate change is catch an airplane. And once you're aware of that... It's very hard to justify travel to yourself, but at the same time, you want to do it. You know, you want to explore and you want to see the world. So what I do do is in my everyday life, I don't own a car. I walk everywhere as much as I can. I take public transport. So I try and limit my carbon emissions on that side of the ledger to try and make up for the fact that I do fly a fair bit. Everyone has different places they want to go. You might want to go overseas, you might not. For me, I want to go to Iceland. I want to be on a mountain top With a radio and good batteries And go to Bjork's for lunch. She'll have me. Maybe there are some cool places here in Australia you want to visit that you can drive to or don't need to hop on a plane to get to. Stephen Waring is an associate professor from the University of Technology, Sydney, and he says he's got everything he needs right here, down under. 
I remember I, I got brought up in the Northern Territory in a number of Aboriginal communities and the question always was, why do you come here? Why do you travel? Don't you like where you live? And I suppose my thought for that was, yeah, I live where I want to go on holidays. I live in the Northern Beaches and I like the beach. So I tend not to travel and I get hassled about that a lot. I turn down a lot of stuff overseas because of that. But if I'm going to travel, usually around longer periods of time, so going and staying, so I'll go for you know, three to six months to work with a community. Um, and most of my engagement is over long periods of time. So I, I tend not to be a, a short-term tourist and I tend not to be a just going on holidays tourist. And if I'm doing that, I'll go to, well, won't travel or I'll go locally. I feel like as well as and good as it might be to pose something like that, I feel like a lot of people would be up in arms about it because everyone's today so keen or has always been but so keen to go overseas and see different things and to strip them of traveling might be a bit of a task yeah i agree yeah and here's me you know like at 58 going to people you shouldn't travel and i've traveled quite a lot when i was younger so yeah i don't think that's a fair thing to impose on people so the next step is then to think about how you impact when you travel so that carbon footprint that you talk about is really relevant it's about well how can i make this travel either useful or impactless so where can i go where it might help people or where can i go where i'm not having huge amounts of impact on the destination itself how exactly and what they're doing being this ecotourist, what is sustainable about that? So for ecotourism, um, which is a really specific part of like what you might call nature-based tourism, yeah, it's about then thinking about, well, when I travel, am I supporting things like sustainable impacts? Like, have they, are they using solar, wind energy? Uh, are they low-impact accommodation? Where is that accommodation? Is the money from that going back into, say, a protected area or a national park where we're assisting with the development of that park or the retention of that national park? So we're minimising impacts we're putting money back into communities and into protection of natural areas so places like Binnaburra Lodge which is an accredited ecotourism resort which you can go and stay it's more expensive but they have everything is sort of self-contained there so that they have very minimal impacts as a result of you staying there. What are some of the other sustainable practices or impacts they can have? Okay, well, so so in a destination, there's there's sustainable criteria. So it's how you travel. Do you go to a destination? Can you hire a car that's an electric car? Do you use petrol-driven vehicles? Can you use just local transport? So all of those sorts of criteria. Like if you go to Yosemite National Park, they now have electric buses. Uh, so do you stay in a big chain hotel or can you stay in local accommodation where the, a lot of that money goes back into the destination itself? So starting to think about how it works at a destination and what you can do to support that. How switched on do you think people are about their carbon footprint when it comes to their travels? Because if it were for me and I'd planned this big holiday overseas and I want it to be cheap, I'm still kind of just out of university, I sort of am working to a budget, I might not be so focused about how sustainable I'm being in my travels. But on the whole, do you think people think about this idea that much? I think, yeah, well, the research shows that people are increasingly thinking about it. Like a lot of people see themselves now as being environmentally aware. But the issue more is, yeah, when you're at home making that decision, yeah, I think that a lot more people do look at that. The, the, the issue is more when you travel to a destination and get there and then make a decision. And we've got research for backpackers that come to Australia that are travelling to the Blue Mountains for one-day trips and they just make it purely on the budget. They're deciding value for money is the most important part of 
of their decision making. So they're not looking at if the company's accredited and what they're actually doing when they're up there. How big of an issue is unsustainable tourism? Well, it's it's the big one in the world today. You, you can see if you go to any of the web pages like Mallorca, all of these destinations that have become so run down that they're going to have to pour huge amounts of money to get them anywhere close to being acceptable as a sustainable destination for the future. So, so yeah, we, we've got so many tourists. Cheap air travel has meant people are going and there's just so many on, coming into a destination. Those destinations just can't support it. The carrying capacity is by far exceeded, but the, the companies that are working there, it's profitability. It's, there's a return at the moment for those destinations to where there's high profit to be made. And in, in, in neoliberal societies, yeah, we see, well, that's what drives the way we operate. So we're going to keep on doing it until it falls over. So we need to start to think about how do we change that. And local communities are starting to resist that those numbers coming in. They're starting to have development plans and sustainability criteria where they're saying, say, no, we don't want any more, or no, we want to change the way we do this. And in Australia, like Byron Bay is one of the ones on the decline. There is just too many people going to Byron Bay. So the council and the local community are looking at changing what occurs, changing zoning. You can't build more hotels there and changing when people come and how people come. Do you have any advice for a tourist who's travelling to maybe a huge metropolitan region overseas and it's a completely different scenario there? Yeah, that, that's a really difficult one. Yeah, it's it's... The main sustainability for those areas is really based around the destination authorities, the governance in those authorities rather than the tourist. There's not a lot you can do as a tourist in urban areas to change what you what you do, um, except maybe in accommodation sector, like staying in, again, in local um, destination accommodation rather than the big, big change, because money in the big change goes out of those regions very quickly, whereas money that's spent on accommodation in those areas by local providers is, is much more beneficial to the community. And that's probably one of the few things. But for destination areas and their governance, uh, yeah, there's lots of things that can be done. And like Manly is a good example where it's, you know, considered a high-level destination in terms of its ranking as a sustainable destination. And they do an awful lot of things like they try to minimise plastic bottle use so that there's water fountains where you can get filtered water so you're not buying plastic bottles. They they support Far West Children's Home so that there's kids coming from Western New South Wales so, to have a, a, a beach holiday and they, they support that you know, sustainability and social sustainability supported through that and they've got one of the first management plans for Shelley Beach Cabbage Tree Bay Reserve Marine Reserve so they manage that so it, tourists can use it and local people can use it where it's managed so it's sustainable so in terms of a destination very much more about how the destination's managed in particularly urban big metropolitan areas rather than what the tourists can do. Stephen Waring, Associate Professor from the University of Technology, Sydney Business School. So, Ellen, you're planning to jet off to Europe in a couple of months' time. How's that making you feel now? Well, the thing I'm most concerned about is the flight. I feel like a bit of an environmental vandal, but that's the only (laughs) way you can go overseas, right? Like, short of spending months at sea... But I do trust myself enough that I won't be a grotty tourist and throw my empty beer bottles on the side of the street. So that's a start. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Ellen, you're still a student. You must hear some horror stories of people trying to make ends meet. 
Yeah, luckily I personally am not in that boat, but I do have friends in Sydney who live out of home and study and, you know, don't have that much time to work and they end up with about $10 for food each week once rent and bills are deducted. The student life can be a blessed one and a cursed one as well, but those working at the UTS Bluebird Brecky Bar are offering a hand where they can in the form of muesli. Many students come here from early in the morning from their place, you know, and some of us lucky enough to have a breakfast, but most of us do not have a breakfast to start with. This is B. She's a student at UTS and has been coming to the Bluebird Brecky Bar since it started five years ago. I just love it. We have yogurt now, we have avocado most of the time. <laughs> it's a hub basically, you know, people get together, um, share information, chat, uh, somewhere to sit down, have a yarn, yeah. The Brecky Bar runs every Tuesday and Wednesday morning at UTS and aims to get the students pumped up in the morning and not fall asleep in class during the day. This is Siobhan. She works at the Brecky Bar. We provide um, muesli and yogurt and we also have like toast and like all like the spreads that you need really. Um, there's coffee and tea and it's all free for the students. But what do you like about this? I like the fact that we're like um, providing it to students who like can't have breakfast or like we'll be running out of the house so they'll miss it and stuff because I know I do that too all the time. Siobhan's not the only one I'm sure even I remember being a student and scoffing on some dry weedies while I'm running out the door and as you can hear there are a lot of students around so it seems like everyone is kind of on the same boat. So how exactly are they feeding so many mouths? Hi, I'm Stephanie King. I created the Bluebird Brecky Bar at UTS and I work for the UTS Students Association. Yeah, it did really start as a couple of loaves of bread um, from Coles. I mean, it wasn't Bluebird Brecky Bar then, but it basically its origins were as like a student-run campaign. Um, just sort of, you know, like a classic group of student activists sort of reaching out to students around campus from the SRC. But then, yeah, it turned into Bluebird. Uh, initially, we reached out to a whole different range of suppliers and uh, they came on as sponsors, which was incredible. So we had some uh, bread suppliers, yogurt and dairy suppliers, muesli suppliers. Um, our tea and coffee sponsors are still giving us free coffee, which is incredible. <laughs> and they, they're a really amazing um, group. They're, they're called Jasper Tea and Jasper Coffee. And they were one of the pioneers of fair trade in this country. So the whole thing and all the food supply was built on finding these synergy with different companies and organisations that had the same vision of us um, in terms of sustainability socially and environmentally. You were once a student here, why, why is this important to you to have something like this up and running? Anecdotally from my own experience as a student and knowing other students as well, like it's a real struggle to, to feed yourself on a daily basis and we, you know, we knew we had been surveying at the time that a lot of students were skipping breakfast which is you know, a nightmare for concentration and things in lectures so that's sort of the origin of, of why we thought it was important to create it. Um, but it was also really important, essentially this was a project for students that was made by students. Coming out of the Student Association, I was a student who created it. We have student staff. We have basically everyone in the in the chain as a student. That's really led to the success of the project um, because there's a sense of ownership. And in terms of like when we actually made the cafe, we 
briefed a bunch of students actually from the design faculty to go and basically rescue furniture from the street and from dumps and, and um, tips and things and, and scraps and to fabricate the entire, like the, you can see the setup of the cafe is sort of around three different stations um, and we've got like power coming down from the roof that sort of connects to those stations and they're these really really beautiful timber um, timber structures and there's a timber tree in the middle um, that sort of facilitates like the different different stations of muesli and yogurt and then um, you know toast with avocado and tea and coffee and things like that. Yeah it's got this like really cute wooden tree in the middle with things draping off of it. What? And it still works. I mean, all these years later, we've made a couple of tweaks, but essentially that's the same furniture. At the time, they created like chairs made out of stacks of books bound in, in belts and all these incredible elaborate approaches to the brief of like using rescued items and as little new stuff as possible because we really just didn't want to contribute to that enterprise. Why is it or how important is the accessibility of the Bluebird Brecky Bar? Because we are in like the main foyer of the campus and just along the main road. Yeah, that's actually a really good question and something that we fought really hard for. It's not always that easy to set up big visible things in the middle of the foyer. People always push you to use other areas, especially better resourced areas that have, you know, greater access to power and things like dishwashers, which are kind of crucial to the running of a cafe. But we were really adamant that we had to be here in this sort of open setting because we really wanted to draw students in and that's been I think the success of Bluebird and they, they refer to it as like a sticky um, activity as in the students stick and there's always been criticism I think of UTS of um, not being a, a place where people stick around very much and because visibility is everything we push really hard for that and uh, and we had support from the union that was great and it's been um, the right way to go about it. You mentioned about where all the dirty dishes and all that stuff goes where, where does all this stuff get washed up? Yeah, that's also a really good question um, because obviously we have nothing that's disposable as part of our sustainability initiative. So we have like proper crockery and in a pop-up format with like the volume of students that we have coming through, that is a huge, huge difficulty. But we have access to the dishwasher down in the food court. So the students who are staff actually ferry all the dishes in uh, crates and trolleys down a couple of levels, wash them and then bring them up. So it's quite an operation, but it's something that we sort of finessed over the years to sort of minimize the amount of fairing that goes on and, and streamline that process. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely easier ways to do it, but we would have to sacrifice our incredible location. I also feel like if the students are around it and they see that there isn't a whole lot of disposables that they're taking with them and chucking out, subconsciously that makes people think to not do that even in their everyday, they, they might go somewhere and then they'll be like, oh, I had a bowl there. Why don't I take a bowl elsewhere? Or why don't I take my portable coffee cup? Yeah, it's quite incredible. Um, we sort of thought when we first created Bluebird, we sort of thought it would be like fairly self-explanatory. Like if people had bowls, they would sort of clean up after themselves and put the scraps in the bin and like stack them in the spots. But amazingly, they didn't and it really took some education and, and for us to be humble and sort of realize like how we had to help this process. And so we, uh, over time came up with this clean and stack kind of station that sort of has things signposted not in a like patronizing way but just like you know get rid of your stuff um, yeah we really had to sort of train that I suppose through the through the evolution of the cafe um, but another part of, of what you're talking about in terms of um, sustainability and, and creating like positive behaviors around that is that we uh, have a keep cup initiative and so 
at the beginning of every semester with the start of Bluebird, we give out free keep cups to really, really encourage people to get into that mindset of bringing their own and um, and thinking about waste and reducing reducing that. Because I think this is the largest amount of people I've seen in one space walking around with these reusable coffee cups. Like everybody has one. It's really incredible. We've kind of like taken over campus with our, <laughs> our trademark colored keep cups. Yeah, it's really incredible. I get a sort of small kick when I'm just sort of like about campus going to get my coffee or something, seeing students like not even on days with Bluebird, just carrying these cups. It's a it's a sign that people are really carrying the message of sustainability away from this initiative and into their lives. And, you know, that's just the absolute best thing we could hope for. Stephanie King, founder of Bluebird Brekkiwar. I've noticed this weird thing when I wake up in the morning and I live out towards Newcastle Way. It, it always seems cool enough to bring a sweater, but when I bring one, I get to work here in the city and it feels so much warmer. Are you sure that's just not like how the days work? <laughs> no, they get hotter as the day goes on? It's like a different type of heat. I, I live across the road from a huge bushland and, and the heat is, it's it feels fresher. It's not this congested heat. It's almost manageable there. But here in the city, it's sticky, it's tarry. It's this like hub of humid heat that sticks to you and follows you around for the day. Our cities are some of the hottest places on the planet. And it's not just because of the amount of people. It's also just a byproduct of how our cities were built. They're often called urban heat islands, which means our metropolitan areas are much warmer than rural areas. Angus Gentle and Jeff Smith are from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UTS, and they're looking at how to make our cities cooler while using renewable resources. And it all starts with our roofs. If you look down for an aeroplane or a satellite or whatever onto a city, you see roads, you see roofs, and you see green areas. And that's why it's so very important we, we get those surfaces properties right, because that's where Angus and I work. It's those properties looking down from above that make a big difference. A lot of people look at roofs. Some people have started looking at the effect of changing footpaths and roads. One of the issues with that, obviously, you've got cars driving over it, so there's only certain things you can do with changing the surfaces. But roofs cover a very large area of the urban environment, so if you can change the solar reflectance of that by a little bit, absorb less heat, you can save energy effectively. What roofs are we looking at? Well, you're looking at a lot of tile roofs and you're looking at uh, warehouses. Uh, we do a lot of work in thermal imaging nowadays. You take pictures in the, what range that we don't see with our eyes, but the, you can see the heat coming off. What we're interested in is, is how much heat is stored up in different places, as I said, especially late at night. If you fly over Sydney, you'll see some areas which are relatively cool and some areas which are quite hot. One of the worst is the CBD here. But if you just go down the road towards Mascot, where there's lots of customs and warehouses and stuff like that with the white roofs, they're somewhat cooler because they reflect. Okay. Uh, with shopping centres we've worked on, you'll see they're cooler. But uh, the typical urban house and the roadways and everything there uh, depends how many trees. Mm. And it's a combination of the thermal mass of the building. So if you've got a big bit of concrete, if it heats up during the day, it's going to store the heat. If you've got something where it's you know, a metal roof with insulation below it, you can't store much heat in that, so that'll cool back down below ambient relatively quickly and keep cool through the night. And make life more comfortable for everyone. 
And talking about a comfortable life, this notion of what an urban heat island is plays massively into this. Well, basically, when the sun in the daytime, especially in summer, of course, um, and more recently in Sydney and other times, uh, whole urban areas have lots of concrete and massive things and, and roadways and so on and buildings, including roofs, that absorb heat. And that heat gets stored up. It doesn't just go away. It stays there. And, and what happens to the urban heat island, the big problem is it's partly the day, uncomfortable outside, but it's more that this stored heat carries over into the night time. And you can find quite high temperatures in urban environments in the middle of the night, you know, 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, and you go out the same time in the countryside, it'll be 10 degrees lower. So it has massive health implications and morbidity rates, uh, hospital admissions, all these things go up. And, uh, and energy costs, of course, we use more air conditioners. And, you know, all in all, it's a big problem for the future. For the main part of your research, you're looking at this area of reflection and in particular certain paint coatings that you can apply to roofs and they reflect more light. How are these coatings different from the ones that are on your conventional roof? So you've got different ways you can reflect light. We're just basically looking at all the different methods you can do and seeing what is the best one to apply to a roof. Many years ago, we did some work on solar reflective paints which were coloured. So with that you want to reflect the near infrared but still be able to have a colour that people might want. So in some cases people don't want to have a white roof for example. But you can have, if you reflect all of the near infrared, then you can have a coloured roof of your choosing but still reflect the region that's only absorbing heat. And so paint companies are now going out and doing this sort of thing but there's ways you can do this better and so that's one of the things we look at. What are some of the ways you can do it better? So by adding different additives into the paint that aren't currently being used. Which are what? So so one of the things we've done previously is doing metal flakes in the paint. So if you have aluminium, obviously everyone knows that reflects quite well. And if you do coatings on that aluminium and embed it in your paint binder, you can reflect the near infrared and have the colour you desire. The other way to do it is is the very white, white paints, the ones that do reflect the best ones for our solar cool roof work are, are white and the pigment that everyone uses is tends to be what we call titanium dioxide if you go along to bunnings or wherever and buy some paint you'll have almost certainly have some titanium so, oxide pigment that's it, a little so it's, oxide it's, particle it's the same stuff that's used in sunscreen and that that reflects right mm. across so if you want to then color it you add other particles so what people have been looking at is what particles they can add into that Traditional pigments up to a few years ago were, were absorbed right across the solar spectrum or tended to. What the game for most of the paint manufacturers is to get pigments that only colour where your eye sees and they do not do anything so that still allows you to reflect the other. Have you, have you been inside, either of you been inside a building with this certain coating? And if you have, can you explain what the temperature difference is? Difference so is like moving in so there. a lot of commercial buildings are air conditioned. So you don't usually feel much of a difference because it's got the air conditioning, but if you talk to the people that operate the plant for the cooling for the building, the amount of energy they're using is significantly less. And on the very hottest days, the air conditioning doesn't break down. Last summer when you had all those really, really hot days, on those hot days, the air conditioning running at full capacity, eventually it drops out, the building overheats. And so if you're minimising the heat load coming through the roof, you can actually have the air conditioning not drop out so it's not only saving energy, 
it's also making it that your building can continue to run. Obviously, you don't want to have your warehouse or your shopping centre getting hotter than people will actually want to be in. There's another fascinating side. It comes back to the urban heat island thing. What we found when we started working with these people, or some years ago, we did a couple of supermarkets up and with Lend-Lease and a few other companies as well. We compared two supermarkets, one that had the old coating on and one that had this new coating on. And we did a study of the energy use and, and it dropped dramatically, absolutely dramatically. And the trouble is we had computer models that said it only dropped half as much and said, what the dickens is going on here? There's something we hadn't anticipated. We had a gut feeling early on what was happening and, and that tied up the air around the building is actually cooler. What that does, A, it makes your air conditioner op- more, operate even more efficiently. Not only has Angus said that there's a load on the air conditioner drop, the air conditioner actually operates more efficiently. And the thing we call, a, if you buy an air conditioner, you get a COP, it's called the coefficient of performance. The higher that is, the better. But it, people don't understand that that number they give you in the brochure is not a, a static number. It varies with the outside air conditions. So if that air is cooler, then your air conditioner will operate far more efficiently. A few degrees makes an enormous difference. That was half the gain. The other half was simply that cooler air was going into the building because you, you have air exchange in your building, especially in a supermarket, so there's air going in and out all the time. And if that air going in and out the building is a few degrees cooler, it literally doubled the energy saving. Angus Gentle and Jeff Smith from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UTS. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.